Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Seems fitting, huh? The uh, the last episode that you and I have before, sorry, the last episode that we have before our seventh anniversary of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> the plans went out the window. We're recording remotely because you, Brad, got COVID. Glad to hear you're you're doing okay. And uh, Evan's not here. <laughs> so we're, we're really going back to our on roots. Brand. Yeah. All seriousness, though, um, Evan and his uh, his girlfriend had to uh, put down one of their cats uh, today. So our thoughts are with them and sorry for the loss to their family. And um, we'll be looking forward to having Evan back on Sunday. Brad, you caught it, man. You couldn't dodge it forever. I, I This whole time I've been saying it's not if, it's when. I knew I was going to get it between... I only have three things in my life, but all three things have heavy interactions with the public. I work with the public. I have children, one of whom goes to school, so I get all those germs coming home, and I play hockey. I, It was happening. I don't do anything else in my life, but one of those things was going to cause it. Yeah, the fourth thing is the podcast, but you should know that Evan and I are hermits, so we're not actually any additional exposure. Yeah, you already had it, and Evan doesn't leave the house, so I wasn't worried about exposure there. <laughs> Well, um, I already made my short jokes on Twitter today, so I won't do those. Uh, but again, you sound you're you're faring better than I did. I sounded miserable. Yeah. So the actual story of how I found out sucked because the timing could not possibly have been worse from a public health standpoint. So I woke up about Sunday afternoon. I started feeling a little phlegmy, like not sick, just you know what I mean when you're you're not stuffed up in your throat, but you kind of feel it. My allergies do, yeah. My allergies do that to me once or twice a week. Like I don't think anything of it when it happens. I just get home and pop my allergy meds, and I'm fine. And so whatever, I didn't think anything of it. Go about my day. Sunday, wake up Monday. I feel no different. Nothing's getting worse. I'm like, eh, yeah, it's allergies. It's fine. I go. I have a beer league game that night, so I go out play whatever, like I do every Monday night. And given that it's beer league, I give it exactly 15% effort, not trying whatsoever. I get off the ice and I feel winded. Like, I'm actually winded. I haven't been winded in a beer league game in like 10 years. So I'm like, okay, that's weird. We're coming off the month-long shutdown. I only played really one game before that game. So I'm like, okay, I'll chalk it up to rust. I get home. I've got an email. Uh, I open it. It's from the GM of my other team, my actual team. One of the staff members on the team tested positive and they were at the game Friday night. And I'm like, oh, cool. That's fun. Then all of a sudden I'm like, they're like, if you have symptoms, you should probably, if you have a test, test yourself. And I'm like, I don't have any. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, it was a little stuffy. I did get winded really easily. Should probably take a test. So it's like midnight on Monday. Take the test. Shit, I have a lot of people to text now. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, why don't we say welcome to the Wind Wheel Podcast. Remote for this episode, not in studio. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. Uh, I am Brad Crisco, still. And Avin Lub... Avin Lub... (laughs) Avin. Avin Lubsinger. What's wrong with me? 
Evan Lobsinger isn't here this episode. Uh, he'll be back uh, on Sunday. What an uh, on unfortunate this ep- episode. I have COVID and you're having a stroke. Yeah. Live. <laughs> I hope it. Uh, I hope I make it long enough to publish so you can all hear it. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, also, there's a ton of content to cover, so I better stay coherent. Uh, on this episode of the Winged Wheel podcast, there's a, a fantastic amount of um, coverage to be had for everything happening across the NHL. The general theme is tire fire. Uh, and this doesn't extend to Detroit this time around. So we'll be talking about the Red Wings win over Philadelphia. Uh, we'll have a lot of good things to say about surprise, surprise, Moritz Sider. Lucas Raymond is in there. You know, the Guelph line. We'll have some conversations about the lineup uh, if and when Verona comes back. Some news on Hronik and then... Uh, some idle rumors about about how Eisenman can leverage the cap. And then depending on time, we will talk about that Arizona arena deal, which has been certified to some capacity today. Um, cleaning house in Montreal the season after they made the cup finals. Ken Holland fired a coach, believe it or not, and whatever else we get to before overtime. Before we do all that, I, of course, want to talk to you about the Jamie Daniels Foundation and how we support them. The way we support the Jamie Daniels Foundation is through the Wings Money on the Board initiative, which is something that we started uh, in partnership with Prashanth Iyer, good friend of the podcast. Wings Money on the Board is when you watch the Red Wings and you make pledges based on what they do on the ice, whether it be wins, Moritz Sider hits, Lucas Raymond goals, uh, Guelph line points, whatever you want, however much you want, uh, watch, pledge, and then eventually donate to the Jamie Daniels Foundation. We have tons of great giveaways and prizes involved as well. So visit wingedwheelpodcast.com slash blog and click on the Wings Money on the Board uh, post to read more about that and visit jamiedanielsfoundation.org to find more about uh, what they do and how to support them beyond. Okay, the Detroit Red Wings came off a long all-star break. It was a lot of days off, actually. Seven. It was a full week off. They had Wednesday the second against LA, and then this was their first game since. So Wednesday night, took to Philly, and for the first time in 25 years, they won a regulation game in Philadelphia. The last time they did, the last time they did this uh, overall was on... June 3rd, I think it was, game two of the Stanley Cup Finals in 1997. And the last time they did it in the regular season was also 1997 at the end of January. So 25 years since they've won in regulation in Philly, and they did it last night. What can't Lucas Raymond and Mo Sider do? (laughs) That was uh, from the start of the game, right? You could see that Lucas Raymond was really, really energized. I think there's more to be said about how his kind of peaks and valleys have gone over the season. And it's not anything of concern. I think even when he was at his lowest point, he was leading rookie scoring. But Lucas Raymond has been hotter at points, has cooled off at points as as he's progressed through his full, first full NHL season. And I was thinking about it before the game. Like, you know, this is pretty normal and we see it. Although for a player of Lucas Raymond's caliber and, and for the, the kind of minutes and teammates that he has or line mates that he has, I'd expect him to have another bounce back where we see a little bit more of Lucas Raymond that we saw to start the season. It took like 10 minutes into the game and there was three points between the two of them, Raymond and Sider. Raymond looked, he was making plays out of nothing. He was, he was displaying every di- separate facet of his game. Looked fantastic. 
these kind of natural breaks in the season, like the all-star break and stuff like that are going to benefit the guys who haven't done an 82 game season the most. Um, Lucas didn't even really get his COVID break when he was on COVID protocol because the rest of the league was in pro was on break as well. So he didn't actually miss any games. I don't think so. No, it was, it was good. Most siders a freak. He doesn't count, but with Lucas, we've seen the effect this year of when the schedule gets tough and, and gets long and they have those stretches of like 10 games in 20 days. It, it does seem to affect him more than the rest of the team, which is understandable. He's never played a schedule like this in his life. Um, so the fact that he got a seven day rest and came out of the gate on absolutely fire shouldn't be surprising. Um, and it was good to see that, you know, it was still good. And I mean, he had a, he had a, his new line mate blended in with their line seamlessly and looked great. So that was a good start. And especially when you have a second line clicking, um, like the Guelph connection is right now, it really does take the pressure off the top line, which actually does free them up to play better. Um, because you know, when players can play a little looser and they're not necessarily getting the tough matchup 100% of the time, these are the natural results. Yeah. And and like you mentioned, it, it was bound to happen. There's natural breaks in the season and things like as the lineup gets reconfigured and, and as guys get re-energized and whatever it might be, it's not like Lucas Raymond was going to be like this for the rest of the year. But yeah, it was, it was really good to see kind of right off the bat. It wasn't a perfect game from the Red Wings. The final score was 6-3 and I think all of Philly's three goals came like within what, 25-ish seconds of a Red Wings goal prior. So this was just like a quintessential this is the game that we referenced actually recently because the red wings did something like this we were saying if this is how the red wings are going to play for the rest of the year where it's just absolute wild card let's do it that's amazing because what happened offense was firing on all cylinders uh more outsider on defense was doing more outsider things the rest of the defense which there's not really much to be said about what they're doing right now you might not be fair to individual guys at certain times on the ice like i think uh, Lindstrom, for example, deserves a lot of appreciation within the context of his role. But overall, the Red Wings defense is weak. So, yeah, if the Red Wings are going to go balls to the wall for 60 minutes on offense and their defense lets them down for three goals or, or four goals or whatever it might be, but they end up winning the game or at least they, they produce for 60 minutes, that is quintessential 2021-2022 Red Wings. And, and I'm here for that kind of performance. I loved the fact that they pushed for 60 minutes. If you can get that kind of effort most nights, I don't care where they finish in the standings. I'm not pressed about it at all because that is huge for the team. It's huge for learning how to win. And it's huge for the development of guys like Raymond Sider, um, bringing guys like Zidina back into form, things like that. Yeah, if you take the macro view of one game, that game should not be surprising. Um but it was exactly what we've come to expect of this team. You know, outside of an empty net goal, that game on offense was carried by the top six. They had four of the five goals with Carter Hart and net. And, um, you know, Joe Valeno set up Giovanni Smith for the fifth goal, which was good to see because, you know, depth scoring has been an issue for this team. So getting that was good. But again, it was the team being carried by the same group of players which is good because these are the players that are the core of this team going forward, the future of this team, the guys who are going to stick around. I really do not care what Sam Gagne or Adam Ernie do. Like if I'm being honest, they're irrelevant to this team going forward. 
in the terms of contender window. Um, you know, and even if you do end up trading a Robbie Fabry, a Tyler Bertuzzi, hey, all they're doing is pumping up their trade value. So that's a win there. Um, it was a great, I don't want to call it a bounce back game because they both were playing really well going into the break, but it, it was good to see Zadina and Valeno continue the momentum they were building. Valeno's playing fourth line center, which is fine, but he was noticeable two weeks leading into the break and then to come back and have a really solid game to start. Fantastic. Phillips Adina, that was maybe the best game we've seen him play this year. Um, I mean, he got to play with Larkin and Raymond, so that shouldn't be a surprise. But he was phenomenal. Um, typical Zadina fashion, didn't end up on the score sheet still somehow. Poor guy. But, you know, it was it was all the boxes we hope they'd check, minus Nadelkovic not really being on his game. So... The macro view is good. Obviously, we'll get into the minutia of the game shortly. But yeah, it was. They are who we thought they were. And we should be fair and point out Philadelphia is terrible. I cannot understate how bad they looked that game. I thought the Red Wings were a team that missed a lot of the little details of the game and got exposed. Philly looked way more disjointed. Philly looked absolutely lost at points. Now, I don't want to take this anything away from Detroit on that one because Detroit is now in the stage where they're still not a good team, but they should be able to routinely kick the shit out of the bad teams. And they went into Philadelphia and kicked the shit out of a bad team. They did what they should do. So that's not dismissing how well the Red Wings played at all. Um, Their defense still has the holes and they still allowed the goals, whatever. By and large, Detroit carried the play. But yeah, holy hell, Philadelphia's bad. Yeah, and you know what? Carter Hart had a bad game too. So you can see how that team operates. If Carter Hart has a bad game, they just have no hope. does not matter. They scored. So I'm going to walk through the game. And while walking through what the Red Wings did, I'll tell you what the the Flyers did right after. So Larkin scored a goal in the power play, which they took away from him and gave back to him actually a couple times. Scored in the power play. 20 seconds later, Philly tied it up. Ratcliffe scored. Uh, Lucas Raymond scored. I think I thought a fantastic goal where it was a mix of getting his nose dirty in front and also displaying his skill and quick hands and quick thinking. 24 one, seconds later, one, Philly tied it up. One point that made me laugh on that Lucas Raymond goal that I, I, I feel like we have to point out. If Raymond doesn't collect that rebound, that's a gimme for Zadina. <laughs> Zadina's stick was right there. Of course, the puck's there. Zadina's there. The empty net is there. But Raymond gets to it first because he's a right shot and it ends up right in front of him. But I'm like, that would happen. Uh, Pew Suter scored the first of the Guelph line goals from Fabry and Bertuzzi. Uh, and then not even five minutes later, Robbie Fabry uh, scored one off a nice feed from Suter. It was Suter off a nice feed from Fabry and then Fabry off a nice feed from Suter and Sider actually on that goal. Uh, 21 minutes or 21 minutes, 21 seconds after the uh, Fabry goal, Philly scored to bring it within one. And then Giovanni Smith made it a two or yeah, two goal game. Uh, Mickey Redmond was talking about how uh, the Red Wings could have more than just a one goal lead and mere seconds later, Giovanni Smith scored off a drop from Valeno or a pass from Valeno and then Nemesnikov sealed it with the empty netter to make it 6-3. It was just, you're right. They were carried by that top six. We are going to talk about all the different things that Mo Sider did um, in just a minute here. We've mentioned how Lucas Raymond had a great game. Phillips Zadina on the top line. Uh, it was or it was seen in practice yesterday. Max, Helene St. James, everyone 
put it out there right away. Like, hey, Zadina is practicing with Larkin and Raymond. And like you mentioned, Brad, if there's ever, ever, ever a way to get your mojo back, it is to play with Dylan Larkin and Lucas Raymond on the Red Wings. Like, this isn't a, hey, if Zadina F this up, he'd be like, throw toss him out the window. But at the same time, I, w- I was actually saying to myself, there are no excuses, especially with Zadina playing well going into the break. This is, I think, the exact right time to do it. A lot of credit to Jeff Blashill for making that switch because Nemesnikov was doing just fine up there. Nemesnikov has been doing more than just fine all year. But capitalizing on the kind of game that Zadina had, and like you said, I think it was his best game all year. Not on the score sheet, didn't rip one home, nothing really converted. He didn't get any bounces his way, but the kind of confidence he had with the puck his movement in the zone. There were a few times where I was like, his positioning could have been a little bit better, but I'll I'll be kind here and chalk that up to he hasn't been playing with players of Larkin and Raymond's calendar or caliber all year. Um, he had one of his best games all year. Jeff Blashill is not, you know, permanently putting Zadina in his doghouse, but he's not been afraid to call Zadina out when he's been playing poorly he's benched him he's talked about how he needs to be better after the game Blashill said Zadina wasn't just a passenger on that line like he played well on that line he was part of it he wasn't just there for the ride and that was so so important to this team you want to have a dilemma when Jacob Verona comes back with Philip Zadina uh, in that top six you want to make it a tough decision to see who you're going to bump out and how you're going to configure that top six I'd like to see this continue with Zadina on that top line because I want that confidence built up. And if he sticks there all year, great. And if not, that's still fine. But to have that kind of game was a crucial, crucial first step in my mind. Yeah. And I like that note about he wasn't a passenger because he really wasn't. Um, One of Zadina's stronger traits that I don't think he gets enough credit for was really on display on that game, especially on when he was out on the second unit with the power play. Outside of Larkin, he's probably the best zone entry player on the Red Wings. He he finds those seams and he can get the blue line with possession way more often than not. Um, at least when he's playing with confident player uh, confident players, and when he gets the zone, people actually go you know where they're supposed to. Um, but he, he's really good at weaving those zones, and yeah, he he made a lot of things happen, which was good. Um, one point too that I do want to mention um, about that game that I forgot to mention earlier: um, the Red Wings did something they don't normally do, and it worked. The Red Wings entered the third period with a one-goal lead, and they carried the play for most of that third period. They generated the most offense in that third period. They scored the only goal not counting the empty netter of the third period. So it was nice to see them, them break that ultra conservative trap style prevent defense in the third period that we're so used to. So I'm hoping the fact that they did that and it worked, uh, will, will be a trend going forward. Yeah. And like you said, that that's so largely attributed to the top six, like both those lines firing in all cylinders. So it was great to see, uh, it was just nice to see the Red Wings come back and not have a dud game. It's easy to forget, but that game against LA wasn't good at all. Like there was, there were a few moments here and there, but overall they got severely outplayed by a better team. Larkin, you know, no Vegas hangover for him. You know, scored 30 seconds or sorry, not 30 seconds. scored the first goal uh, coming back. And 
for Raymond to have a two point night, for Sider to have a two point night, yeah, it was it was good. Zadina didn't pass up his fantastic opportunity. Valeno continued. Guelph line has just been phenomenal. All of that still. What a great problem to have that all of that still pales in comparison with the general conversation of that game, which is every single night we watch Mo Sider, we end up saying, put that on his Calder highlight reel, put that on his Calder audition tape, put that on his season highlight reel, because, oh man, I I would have been satisfied with that massive hit he laid at the Philly blue line, which he he's really held back this year. Sider's not done a lot of it that we saw in the SHL, in the AHL before, uh, in the German league. Like, Sider can absolutely demolish du- dudes. He's the stealer of souls. He he can do it almost at will. But he's been playing a lot more reserved to focus on his overall game. He's really serious about getting NHL level hockey in, which I'd say he's doing pretty well. <laughs> um, so to see him step up at that blue line and lay that massive hit, that was huge. And then. As Mickey Redman is telling a story about his dad, f- wonderful story, like awesome to hear. Mickey Redman tells a story that lasts about 30, 30, 35 seconds. For the entirety of that 30 to 35 seconds, Moritz Sider, whilst on the penalty kill, picks up the puck, travels from his own zone through the neutral zone into the flyer zone through players against pressure being hit all the way through and with he had an an assist at one point in a board battle from a teammate carried the puck back out of Philly's zone into the neutral zone passed back to his own zone uh, for his teammates to to finish the possession killed a quarter of the penalty kill single-handedly killed 30 seconds almost single-handedly I have looked at so many different Moritz Sider plays, small ones, whole shifts like that, offense, defense, big hits, whatever, you know, zone reads, whatever it is. That one for me for now is the top of the list of if you can submit one highlight, submit that for his Calder Trophy nomination. We've talked about he's had his Calder weekend. Now he's had his Calder shift. I mean, he's fourth in rookie scoring. Only one point behind Zegers and Lundell now. Uh, six points behind Raymond. Uh, how does this guy not win? Like, something would have to catastrophically go wrong for him in the second half of the season. Again, I know it probably won't happen for all the reasons we've laid out in previous episodes. I call it, no, I, I disagree. I think it's the most like, I think almost everyone agrees now. Even like, I hope even so. if you look at Zegris discourse, people are like, hey, Zegris is doing great. And here's why I'd make the argument for Zegris over Raymond, which I mean, depending on your angle might be fair, but I don't see anyone bringing him to the level of cider that's at least reasonable. No, he is, like I said, only six points off the rookie scoring lead as a defenseman who's playing among the toughest matchups of any Red Wings defenseman. He is not being sheltered. He is not being given favorable deployment. Um, and he is still, and I think he's, you know, overall over the season, I don't think he leads the wings in average ice time, but over the last month or two, he has comfortably. And what he's doing is remarkable. And we talked about with Max and Prashant, it's not just in one way. Pick a zone, pick a area of the game. He's excelling. He's the best at it on the Red Wings. Who's the best defensive defenseman on the Red Wings? It's Mo Sider. Who's the best offensive defenseman on the Red Wings? It's Mo Sider. Who's the best transition defenseman on the Red Wings? It's Mo Sider. Who's the best hitter on the Red Wings? It's Mo Sider. Who's the best 
passing defenseman on the Red Wings. It's Mo Sider. Like he's doing who's the biggest, everything. And it, who's the biggest rock star defenseman on the Detroit Red Wings? Mark Stahl. Mark Stahl. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> speaking of which, quick tangent: the stat cards last night were incredible. Mo Sider's elite, and then everybody else's bar is kind of just shaded a little bit towards the good and towards the bad side. And Mark Stahl's is just damn near maxed out both directions, <laughs> completely not even close to anybody else on the team. Wild card, <laughs> the man, Mark Stahl, baby. <laughs> the man is maximum chaos, and I love it. But um, anyways, um, yeah, no, like, I, I think I, I talked about it a week or two ago. I love Lucas Raymond. I love Trevor Zegers, despite all the memes and the jokes we made about it. Like, I, I, I'm actually a huge Trevor Zegers fan. I love what Anton Lundell is doing in Florida. He's not getting enough attention. Like, these guys are all legitimately having star-level rookie seasons. These guys are all going to be... Uh, in the Calder nominations, in the talks. But the winner, it's Mo Sider, and it shouldn't be close right now. Again, with all due respect to the guys I just mentioned, it's Mo Sider, and it's not close. He is keeping pace with them points-wise as a defenseman on a bad team without being sheltered at all and playing the toughest role on the team. I don't think people, even in Detroit, Truly appreciate how crazy what he is doing is. Like, if you- Lucas Raymond's probably going to win the rookie scoring title, and that's phenomenal. Trevor Zegers is one of the most exciting players in hockey. It's not close. No. Uh, obviously, you had that operative phrase in there, which is right now, which is what you have to put anytime you're only 48 games into the season, of course. And that, that's fair to say. But yeah, like all homerism aside, every bit of objectivity brought to the surface here, it's not close at all. And let's 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 remove the the Calder conversation here because I don't think anyone listening would necessarily disagree. And if you do, that's fine. Norris uh, conversation. I like where your head's at. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was going to skip past that. Moritz Sider is going to get Norris votes. Norris votes, and he's going to deserve them. Plain and simple, and he should. Like you said, if he was doing this, you know, let's say fewer points and he was doing like 16 minutes a night, that's what Lundell averages, 16 and a half minutes a night. Trevor Zegers about 17 and a half. Lucas Raymond just a touch over 18. If Raymond or Sider was in those those ranges, I would say, yeah, I could understand not considering him among, you know, the league's top defensemen. Man, I I have told people, hey, like I don't think you're going to be wrong. I just right now don't feel comfortable saying, yeah, Moritz Sider's one of the league's best defensemen because it's still early on. We were talking like 10, 15 games into the season. How much longer could you make that argument? I'm not saying he's the number one defenseman in the league, but 48 games into his career and he's doing this stuff, even if he has a sophomore slump, and I've said this before, I think when we were talking to Max and Prashanth, even if he has, has a sophomore slump, a more insider 75% as good as he is right now is still the best defenseman on the Red Wings. This guy, from the moment he was drafted, has elevated his level and defeated expectations from every single person who watched him, whether they were in favor of the pick at the time or whether they were wrong about you know the pick at the time because, like us, we really wanted Zegras when the Red Wings were drafting. I've never... 
I've never seen a pick like this. I've never seen a player do what Moritz Sider is doing. There's not a zone on the ice where I'm like, hey, Moritz Sider is a non-factor here. His transition, like, his offensive game is is explained by his his um his point output, and you watch him for a little bit, you see the impact he makes on his defensive game. Even when he mit, you know, makes a mistake or commits to a hit that he couldn't make or or lunges for a puck, he then recovers because he has the physical tools and the smarts to do so. But his transition game, a guy that big, who had who would have every right to be twice as slow. But no, the the way he skates, he's so smooth and he pivots. It's not just fast and straight lines. He is a smooth skater. He can transition. He can pivot. He can, you know, pull tight circles. He can make guys uh, miss with head dekes and, and body fakes, protect the puck. He can do whatever he wants to do. He gains the zone. He leaves the zone at will. Moritz Sider impacts every part of this game. You've said it. Uh, in a, in a uh, post-game recap, you said Moritz Sider was absolutely everywhere tonight. How many games this year could we have said that? How many games? All. Almost all, all. Almost all. Almost all. I'm going to say this 1,000 more times. And it's not just because we, we talk in a hockey podcast twice a week. It's because Moritz Sider genuinely raises the thought this often. How many more times are we going to elevate what his ceiling is? He's already twice as good. In my mind, like this is the Red Wings franchise defenseman. Well, I don't think we're going to have this conversation for many more years because the the rate he's at it, it kind of sounds like a half joke, but not really. Three years, he might win a Norris. He'll be in that talks. And how much higher can you go than that? There might be a year in the next five years. President of space. Where they go. Where the Hockey Writers Association goes, yeah, this is the best defenseman in hockey. Here's his award. If if Moritz Sider He's- doesn't progress at all year over year and just stays this good, <laughs> it's still a fantastic result for the sixth overall pick in his draft. If you want to look at the rudimentary stats of this, whatever you want to call it, for what we might be able to expect for his improvement, here's a couple things he has going against him. He's a rookie. This is probably the worst he'll ever be in the NHL. He doesn't have the strongest supporting cast around him, especially on defense. He's on an island. He's only a minus two. And there's a couple guys ahead of him in the defensive scoring race who play really sheltered roles. Would anybody here say Tony D'Angelo is a better defenseman than Mo Sider? No. And Mo Sider's still almost top 10 in defensive scoring. I mean... Red Wings, Michigan fans don't like to hear it. Quinn Hughes plays a really sheltered role. He's one of the guys that's just barely ahead of Sider in defensive scoring. He's already in the conversation, in the grouping of these guys. And he's got those factors going against him. He doesn't play sheltered. He's a rookie. And the team doesn't exactly help him a ton other than when he's on the ice with half the team. Like, it's remarkable. I mean, I could sit here and talk for like, Oh, we could do this for hours. I, I have enough content that we could probably call this the Mo Sider podcast featuring the rest of the Detroit Red Wings, but <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think I've got my point across. Yeah, and just to cap it off, I think we've been very honest about this the whole time, and it's something that we'll continue to raise, which is he's not infallible. It's not like he's never made a mistake. He's still a rookie defenseman. The rate at which those mistakes are becoming uh, less and less frequent is 
remarkable to see. But he, there will be points where he's going to have a dip in his game or there is going to be something that's going to hinder and you're going to see him work through. Like th- that's the natural progression for every rookie, phenom or not. But man, the fact that we can say phenom confidently, I've never been happier to be wrong about a pick in my life. Um, okay, so that's the game recap. The Red Wings, before next episode, actually have Philly again, this time in Detroit. That's Saturday. It's a noon game, so uh, nice little matinee, and then we're going to be back with you on uh, on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, so that's what the Red Wings have on deck. Some other Detroit news. Uh, Philip Ronick's been added to the COVID protocol, so there's... Um, Obviously, we had that little rush there around Christmas time where seemingly every player went in and out. It's been a little while, but Hronik has been added. So hope he does well and that he has a quick recovery and makes it back. Um, Okay, what do we want to do? Do we want to jump into the other stuff or do we want to first talk about... Let's do a quick little bit here on um, the Red Wings role at the trade deadline and what's been rumored. If you want to take us away, Brad. Um, There's still going to be sellers. Um. I don't know. There's a couple of things going on right now. So the Red Wings have the ability to retain salary on two more players this season because they've there's a cap of three players in the league and they already have retained on Richard Ponick. Why that matters is there's been talks that the Red Wings might be a third party in a bigger trade um, to like they did with uh, David, the David Savard trade in Tampa where they got a fourth round pick to just eat some cap hit as an inter, as a middle uh, middleman on another trade and the way the NHL market is this year with a lot of teams uh, more than usual um thinking they can win the cup and also being in a flat cap world and a lot of key teams being right up against it the red wings could play a huge part in that and because one of the red wings bigger trade chips uh costs over 5 million dollars in nick letty so if they want to get a premium return on him they probably have to retain at least half um, so I think those are really going to be the only two prominent storylines to watch with the Red Wings going into the deadline. It is Steve Eisman. So like a Bertuzzi trade could always come out of absolutely nowhere, but realistically, I think we're looking at Letty probably going and the Red Wings trying hard to act as a middleman to get a free pick. We might see a Nemesnikov trade. We might see a Sam Gagne trade. We might see a Mark Stahl trade, but I don't think those last two particularly have any much, if any, trade value. But uh, maybe even Thomas Grice is some goalie insurance. But yeah, the the landscape seems to be setting up as such where the two assets the Red Wings are going to have interest in or interest or are going to get interest on in uh, at the trade deadline is their cap space and Nick Letty. And that's uh, the world we live in. Okay, what's your tolerance for my bullshit today? I need to know before I say what's what's in my mind. None. Zero. Absolutely none. Nah, you know what? I'll say a lot under the understanding that if you go off the deep end, I will absolutely try to one-up you. Okay, fair. I don't think this is off the deep end. <laughs> Philip Zadina got put on the first line. It, he got put on. <laughs> stop there. Stop. You, you <laughs> fucking stop. Right there. I won't. Philip Sedina got put on the first line. You said you were going off the deep end, not pulling a header into the Grand Canyon. Hey, what's the difference with me, honestly? Um, he he got put on the first line after not. By the end of this one. 
<laughs> he got put on the first line after not having any exposure to that kind of talent for a good amount of the year when this could have been justifiably the solution earlier. So tinfoil hat. And my qualifier here is that I don't necessarily believe this. I'm putting it out there. Getting Zadina going now, having him produce, they're, they're capitalizing on his little hot streak even before the break. And then he uh, does really well with that first line. He does really well leading up to the trade deadline. Hey, you're going to need to make room in your top six for Verona. Hey, you have some other holes in the team you want to plug in or you want to you know, add up some draft stock for this draft and next one. Maybe Philip Zadina is being auditioned and he's he's potentially on the move. What would Zadina have to do in the next two months, uh, six weeks to even make this remotely worthwhile on the trade market with the way the season went pace like yeah he would have to be a point per game player at least at least for the next six weeks to even garner anything close to a good return because are you moving philip zadina for anything less than what looks like could be a mid first round pick no i'd rather keep him and work on him exactly and but and think of how valuable a mid first round pick. So I'm talking a fringe playoff team moving a first round pick. How valuable those are around the NHL. And you're not teams are giving that up for way more than what Philip Zadina has produced this year. What's more likely here, and if I if we're going tinfoil hat, I don't think either of these things are true. But if we're gonna, I'm just gonna compare. What's more likely is they're giving Zadina a shot in the top six because if he can carry his weight in the top six they can plug jacob verona into the top six to replace tyler bertuzzi who's much older and going to get a much better return that is more likely than trading philip zadina so you want to go tinfoil hat theory sure i would not be surprised if zadina is in the top six for trade reasons but it's not the one you laid out because someone has to (laughs) plug the hole because what are you getting for philip zadina right now a second round pick and a half-ass prospect you don't take that. There's a better likelihood that Philip Zadina bounces back than whatever that return is going to get you. What is going to get you legitimately top end premium return? I don't know. A point per game player. <laughs> so yeah, okay. fair play. But that I don't was... think either. For the record, let me be very crystal clear. I don't think either of those things are true. I'm just saying that's more likely than the alternative. You know, either of us have read comments before anywhere in our life when we have to keep qualifying. We don't believe, we don't believe this is necessarily going to happen. But no, you're, you're right. And I think you're, you're inherently right in the logic there. Um, and it's funny, Evan is not here for one episode and you and I just go off the deep end with stuff that we don't even necessarily believe, but we're just going to give the airtime. Is Mark Stahl going to be Jeff Blashill's replacement? <laughs> hey, don't joke. Don't threaten me with a good time. Um, yeah, I, Back to reality, though, like the, the Zadina and the Bertuzzi silliness aside, not to say it's impossible. Um, my only other note there is, remember, we we kind of said similar things about Mantha is, hey, eventually he might get moved based on his circumstances, but it'd have to be a mega package. Turns out eventually it was much sooner and the mega package was a mega package. Yeah, a lot of how everything led up to the Mantha trade in terms of timing of his production contract, yada, 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 that mirrors Bertuzzi's situation. Not hundred percent, not all that much dissimilar. So that wasn't an English sentence. I don't care, but um, (laughs) no, yeah, it's not exactly the same, but it's 
close enough that it's definitely in the realm of possibility, but we've talked about all the extenuating circumstances around Bertuzzi that are going to make this more complicated and we can't make that disappear. If there was no pandemic right now, I would probably bet on Bertuzzi getting traded at the deadline, but the way things have played out, I'd say it's less than 50%. I'm not going to say low because it is Steve Eisman, but I'm going to say I'm going into the trade deadline on this under the assumption it's not going to happen. Okay, before we jump into the uh, rest of the very plentiful NHL news, we want to first talk about how today's episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast is proudly brought to you by the FanDuel Sportsbook, a sponsor that gives hockey fans what we really need, even more excitement. There's so many reasons why FanDuel is America's number one sportsbook, from ease of use and registration deposits and finding your bet, and of course, quick withdrawals, FanDuel pays your winnings back in as little as 24 hours, and they always have fantastic odds boosts and specials every day with some big super boosts each weekend. Now listen to this, FanDuel FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free up to $1,000. Just place a bet on any game and FanDuel will refund you up to $1,000 back in site credit if you don't win that bet. If you win, you keep the cash. If you lose, you get that grand back in site credit. What we want you to do is download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started with that risk-free bet of of up to $1,000 today. Be sure to sign up with promo code WWP so they know the Winged Wheel podcast sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook promo code WWP. You must be 21 and older and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, Colorado, Iowa, Tennessee, or Virginia, or Michigan. First online real money wager only. Site credit is non-withdrawable and expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See sportsbook.fanduel.com for details. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Virginia, Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789, 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-270-7117 in Michigan. Okay, the whole NHL has just gone completely off the rails. Why don't we start with Arizona? So, I mean, we're not going to relitigate the entire thing again, but we should give the update based on what has been confirmed today. So, uh, credit to Freed, Sean Shapiro, everyone who's reporting on this today. But the Coyotes have approval from the Arizona Board of Regents for the development plan that they've worked out with Arizona State University, which will be the Coyotes' new arena for the next three seasons. And they also have approval for the Yotes to be there even beyond that. The Coyotes will be required to pay all rent and construction costs that they've committed to up front. Um, and that is purely because they've missed or had been late on rent previously, which is hysterical. So if you've ever had a hard time finding uh, getting rental approval from a landlord, just know that even uh, <laughs> a multi-billion dollar NHL uh, franchise or, well, they're not multi-billion dollar, but a multi-billion dollar league has a team who does the same thing. Everything the Coyotes will end up paying for will belong to Arizona State. ASU takes precedence on all scheduling. Uh, They retain the name and sponsorship rights, and the Coyotes will only have game day revenue. And it 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 keeps going beyond that. It's like they don't have any priority in scheduling. They don't have they don't even have an arena approval. Like this isn't contingent on the Tempe arena plan being approved. This is legitimately just in place. Now, this is from the Arizona, you know. ASU, Arizona Board of Regents, whatever, their approval side. 
what have we heard from the NHL? I don't know. Tacit approval with with Bettman's press comments before when people have asked him about it. But like we've said, they always play their cards close to the chest. So what happens now? What's the line, Ryan? What are we even doing here? What are we even doing here? The Coyotes are getting bent over a barrel by a college hockey team to play in a college hockey arena with no arena deal yet done or signed with Tempe. And even if it does, it's not going to work like this. And good for ASU. Let me say like, they're not, they're not the bad guys here at all. No, they're they're not, not at all. Hey, you want to come squat in my house that I'm building? Fine. Then pay to make it bigger. Yeah. Like, this whole everything about this is a black mark for the NHL. It's embarrassing. The NHL wants to be taken as one of the top four leagues in North America. How can they? How can they when stuff like this is going on? Like, I understand every once in a while teams have to play in temporary locations. The Chargers did it, but that was because they were actually relocating. Like, and then, and then this owner of a professional sports franchise is told you have to pay up front because we don't trust you to pay your bills by a college. Like (sighs) this whole day was just embarrassing for the NHL and, and uh, shining a giant spotlight overall on why the NBA is way more popular than hockey. Despite, I think we would all agree, hockey objectively being a better and more entertaining sport on its own. The NBA just had one of the most fun trade deadlines of any sport we've seen in a long time. We've got players sending hilarious tweets, throwing shade at their teammates. Media members laughing at the Lakers on live TV. And meanwhile, in the NHL, you've got this horrific Arizona story. You've got one of the NHL's flagship franchises firing a coach after a year. You've got an old school GM absolutely ruining the prime of two of the best players in the league. Like what hockey fan is sitting there today going, yeah, I don't understand why the NHL is not growing more than it is. I don't understand why the NBA has such a huge control uh, relative to what the NHL does in the States. This is why. This is, I'm just frustrated because like, I'm a hockey fan. I want this sport to grow because I love the sport. And I, I think most people who watch it will be severely entertained by it. And the more it grows, the better it is for me, selfishly, as a fan. Salary cap goes up. Better players come around. More revenue means more cool shit in arenas. Like, I want the sport to grow because I like the sport and I want to selfishly enjoy the sport more. And then watching them constantly shit all over themselves is just depressing. Like... This whole year, like hockey's supposed to be my escape from reality. And now we're dealing with Connor McDavid's career being ruined. The Arizona Coyotes continually just being a black hole to the league. You know, the whole Chicago Blackhawks thing, the whole Evander Kane thing. Like, I'm just tired, man. I'm just tired. Thanks for nothing, hockey. You made my friend Brad sad. And he has COVID right now. That's not what's even making him cry. (laughs) I just... I am so tired of this league. The only thing I will say about Arizona before the next time we talk about it, which I'm sure will be next episode and the episode after that and the episode after that, is I 
sure as hell hope that among, you know, potential arena deals for Arizona, fruitful or not, that the NHL is also working with Houston, Kansas City, Quebec City, whoever, to have a backup plan. Because who's to say that you can't relocate them even with them having this temporary arena? Uh, There needs to be this shouldn't be their last chance. Their last chance should have been five chances ago. And apologists like me shouldn't have been listened to. And, and this should have been the, the issue should have been forced. This needs to be the absolute last chance to get this right. And frankly, Arizona needs to do nothing but 110% of the things right that they need to every step of the way or the NHL ownership or the NHL, you know, board of governors ownership, whatever has to force the issue. We'll come back to it. We'll see what happens. Um, for now, a, a Canadian coach is being fired. Maybe not a new thing. Definitely not a new thing. Uh, let's start with Montreal. Dom Ducharme, who was just signed to a three-year contract, I believe it was, uh, who was already replacing a coach who's still being paid through the end of this year, fired because Montreal is an embarrassingly, embarrassingly bad team in the NHL this year. And none other than Marty St. Louis brought in to replace him at least they're thinking outside the box with the replacement i'll give him credit for that i didn't hate it nhl ahl echl coaching experience no but a very intelligent hockey player a prolific hockey player and you know i watched the presser today and he talked about not wanting to lock guys into systems and giving them the opportunity like best players the opportunity to make reads which is a pretty general statement but you understand what he's saying with that it's if you have a system and you enforce it strictly then you remove those players ability to adapt and make reads on the fly and whatever change the game the game breaking ability kind of gets locked in or thrown out the window if you play a more you know a structure in general and then allow those players to um you know, improvise and make those reads and, and you know, perform those game-breaking plays, then that opens the game up and you maximize your best players. That, in theory, is I really like that way of thinking, especially if you have game-breaking players. It's why you see you – don't, you don't see coaches do well who lock down Sidney Crosby. You don't see coaches do well who lock down Alex Ovechkin. And both those guys went through that at some point or another in their career. You let them thrive and they will. Um what the performance actually looks like. I mean, you're going to have to wait until Montreal gets some more game-breaking players, and you'll have to see what Marty St. Louis does because it's easier said than done. But, hey, I inherently trust a guy who has quads like that, so it'll at least be interesting. Yeah, I was going to say the the negative there is uh, Montreal doesn't have any players with game-breaking ability, uh, with all due respect to Nick Suzuki. But um, when I saw that quote or read that quote, it actually got me thinking about something that Mike Johnson said uh, during the Canada-Germany game on the Olympic broadcast this morning um, when talking about watching Kent Johnson do a bunch of the things he was doing in that game because he had a really strong game. And that was, uh, he looks great out there. He has not yet had the skill and creativity coached out of him. So as a player like Marty St. Louis, who was a very skilled and creative player, you know, I'm not hoping Montreal becomes good, but I am for the sake of the game, hoping guys like St. Louis succeed because I, I think that is the recipe loosely uh, to be a good team, you know, get your defensive systems down and let your horses run. So I I hope it works out for him because it, it, listening to him talk was a bit of a breath of fresh air. So 
we'll see. Um, I mean, Montreal's done just about the exact opposite of right on everything they've done since the cup final run ended. And now they're going to um, get right in the draft. <laughs> no, man. It, they're going to put Shane Wright in Arizona so he can take the pressure off and play in a smaller arena next year than he currently is. <laughs> I I wish that was sarcasm. Anyways, um, but yeah, so I don't know. I, it, it was a relief to see something different. And uh, actually, on that note, um, I know we didn't have it in our show notes, but I do just want to give a small shout out while we're talking about positive things Canadian teams doing. Jimmy Rutherford in Vancouver, absolutely breaking the old hockey man mold. Yeah. Hired Rachel Dory for uh, their analytics department and then hired two women, Kami Granado and uh, Emily Castonguay as assistant GMs. So Vancouver breaking the mold over there. Yeah. Very cool to see. Um. Speaking of breaking the mold, Ken Holland fired a coach. <laughs> Dave Tippett out as head coach of the Edmonton Oilers. Um, Connor McDavid's on his, I don't know, was it sixth, fifth, sixth coach or something like that? What was the stat? Ryan Nugent Hopkins is on his 12th coach in 11 years. Oh, sorry. McDavid has his fourth coach in just six seasons. And yeah, that sounds about right with Nuge. I, I, I can't remember the exact number, but I saw it floating around and oh my God. And you forget the coyotes fold the Oilers. Jesus. And you know what? Edmonton media is funny and the direction they're going to run with that is they'll blame McDavid and Dreisaitl before the administration. But Ken Holland here, once you're firing your coach at this point in the season, your seat is hot. Whether you like it or not and whether anyone will admit it or not, you are not performing to where you should. We were talking about this pre-show, Brad. You know, Ken Holland's hand was forced. He doesn't like to do this. Think back to Dave Lewis with Detroit when Dave Lewis left as coach. If you remember, Dave Lewis is Dave Lewis wasn't fired. They allowed his contract to expire and they actually kept him on as a scout before he got hired elsewhere. This is not Ken Holland's way. He knows that he is squandering time with Connor McDavid. He knows that things have not gone remotely close to how they the Oilers brass wanted to when they brought him on. One thing that I said to you, Brad, which I want to repeat on air here is Ken Holland did not come into a situation that was a blank slate. Steve Eisenman had to do a little bit of work, I think. There was stuff where uh, he had to make a tough decision or make a big move GM-wise to kind of clear the board and have a true blank slate. I don't want to say it took no work. Ken Holland followed up on Chirelli and, you know, what came before him and all the enabling even above Chirelli and the Oilers organization. He came into some shit and it, it would take a mastermind to undo it. Evaluating what Ken Holland has done over, th- over there, his best move was average in my mind. And there have been a lot of questionable ones that have just set them down the exact same path they've been on the entire time. We joke about, you know, save Connor McDavid. Man, as a hockey fan, this is getting sad. It's getting sad. Yeah, I've I've got a lot of thoughts on this. So I'll try and shorten it down and go point by point. So circling back to what you said about his seat being hot, I don't think he thinks it is, whether it is or not. He's almost blatantly said, like saying I'm not giving up my first round picks or any of my top prospects for short-term gain this season he immediately no, thinks he's got next season no matter what happens this year, which based on how the Oilers operate above him is probably true. He's in no rush 
when he should be. Um, you're right. He walked into a bad situation. Um, other than having Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, two of the best players in the world, which is a good head start, everything around them uh, was on fire. So Ken Holland came in and lit more things on fire. I do not think he has made one positive move since he has got there. He was signed signed several terrible contracts, made several terrible trades. Most of them were like absolutely inexcusable. The better ones, the reviews are, eh, I get it, but I probably wouldn't have done that. Like right now, um, I think it was Dreger was reporting that the Oilers, you know, still apparently do not have goaltending on the forefront of their needs, which seems insane to me. But they said they're looking for a top for right-handed shooting D. Okay. Well, they have Evan Bouchard, a rookie, and Ken Holland dished out seven point something million dollars uh and term to Tyson Berry and Cody CC this year. And traded away their best right-handed defenseman for a third line winger. Feels like that problem could have been solved had he just not done anything. Like, he actively made it worse. The left side of their defense. Yeah, Clefbaum, uh, his situation sucks. Darnell Nurse is good. Paid him way too much money, way too much term. And then signed um, or traded way too much for a defenseman who's not good at all. And let's not forget that Miko Koskin and Mike Smith are still the goalies of that team. And it does not feel like that is a priority. Like I was, I was telling you before we recorded, I feel like I was too hard on Ken Holland because he was ours for so long. He was the Red Wings GM and, and we're always gonna put him under a magnifying glass because of, you know, we like the guy. He was here forever. Um, and, and he wants what's best for him. And then, and then you're like, ah, maybe I'm being too critical. Let me take all my bias out of this and really take a hard look at what's going on in that situation. And the after after some reflection, <laughs> my takeaway was we're not being critical enough. He might have, of all GMs that are still employed, he might have had the worst 12 months of every GM in the NHL that still have a job. It's truly remarkable to have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and you're probably not making the playoffs and you feel no urgency. The- now, Dave Tippett got let go, which, sorry, I, I rambled longer than I said I would. And this is the last point, obviously. I don't think Dave Tippett is a particularly great coach, but I don't think Dave Tippett was the problem there. He was dealt a shitty hand and he couldn't do much with it. Again, I don't think he is the answer and you know i already forget the name of jay woodcroft who they replaced him with can't sure why not might as well try but man that it that firing tip it just feels like it's putting a band-aid on a bullet wound he's just they they were following up chirelli right who is a mess chirelli should not have been allowed to be in control of that situation for half as long as he was that the writing was on the wall and they walked past it every day into the office for a long time, years even. 
And so that's on, you know, the upper management of, of the Edmonton Oilers who seem to just cycle through the same guys or, you know, they're there for too long themselves. They're following up Torelli. McDavid wants certainty, which he deserves. The fan base wants some kind of certainty, which they deserve. What do they do? They go out and bring out uh, a GM with pedigree. But it doesn't take a lot of knowledge of his situation to know that that pedigree is antiquated. Probably ended in 2013 where he was really doing anything that benefited the Red Wings or was doing something sensible for the team, save for way too late in the game when he started the Red Wings rebuild. Um, and there's conversations there about was that from ownership? Was that because you know you want to give Datsuk and Zetterberg a chance? All that aside. I, he just wasn't the right GM. I, I think Ken Holland is is a way better GM in previous eras and maybe even a better GM for a different team that just needs someone to keep it within the margins. You're not going to do too much one way or another and just let the team ride. But that's not what, what the Edmonton Oilers needed. They needed a guy to undo an unholy amount of knots and then build something up. All on a timeline that that justifies keeping McDavid and Drysaddle and not spoiling those two careers, and they brought in you know at worst a boring as hell GM who doesn't do those kinds of things or can't or just it's not his style and he's uncomfortable doing it. Or sorry that that's their best case scenario, and at worst someone who doesn't know how but tries and just acts at the ed- the the detriment of the team, despite the fact that Ken Holland has had the success. I think for this era of the NHL, this era of the Edmonton Oilers and the position that they were in, it was doomed from the start. And like you said, Brad, there's only so much as a Red Wings fan that you can really say because at some point you're like, the guy's gone. He's not on the Red Wings anymore. At some point, you're just punching someone, not while they're down, but they're just not even here anymore. Like, why are you doing it? But talking as a hockey fan, yeah, like something has to change or they will lose McDavid. This is no longer a joke. They are going to lose McDavid and or Dreisaitl eventually. Those guys don't play and compete and perform at the level that they do to to not make the playoffs this many years in. You know, it's... Imagine Sid had to go through that for this long. Just wouldn't... It, it, it wouldn't happen this way. Anyhow, that's that's enough about... Ken Holland, I think, will um, – there's going to be plenty of discourse on him. Some quick notes before we jump into overtime here. Uh, Brad Marchand uh, punched Tristan Jari in the face and then high-sticked him while leaving the ice. Um, got a six-game suspension for his uh, efforts and I think now holds the single most uh, individual suspensions in NHL history. Something like that. Um, he does. As someone who can appreciate when Brad Marchand is a heel, bonehead. What an idiot. Like, just an idiotic play. Absolutely stupid. And as Punches a def- jury in the back of the head out of nowhere and then sticks him in the face. As a former defenseman, in case you didn't know, and I understand a lot of players, like, I think Chris Letang was really the only one on the ice who had a sight line. It drives me bonkers when a guy does that and is allowed to skate off the ice. Crosby probably didn't see it. I think people showed me screenshots where he didn't see it, but it drove me up the wall to see the captain of the Penguins grab his buddy from out east on the shoulders and just kind of let him skate away because Martian was already being held by the ref. I get it. It just doesn't apply in this situation, but overall, the amount of times you see someone's goalie get absolutely dummied and the goalie's teammates don't do anything, they should be climbing over each other 
and this is caveman me talking like I, you know advocating for for like this isn't hockey i'm not advocating for hockey but your goalie's going to get dummied and it's a bad for your team if you let him do it if you let him do it and brad marchand gets away with this too much too much man I mean, I'm on record as saying multiple times that, like, I think fighting after clean hits and, like, stage fights, it, it's dumb and not good for the game. Two things. Um, you don't ever let someone sucker punch your guys, and you don't ever let someone touch your goalie. And when they do both, yeah, no, there's there's not a reality. Like, obviously, with the team I play on, if someone did that to our goalies, five suspensions minimum. <laughs> like climbing over each other to get at him is probably the right word, the right phrase, like putting it lightly. Yeah. No, like there would be guys literally grabbing the back of his Jersey and dragging him back onto the ice. If he tried leaving, like it would be chaos. Now I'm not saying that should happen in the NHL. And obviously a lot of the penguins do have an excuse because they probably didn't see it. Didn't know what happened, whatever. But if anybody did see it, yeah, no, there should be absolutely zero hesitation. You take, Whatever penalty, whatever suspension you have to, because nobody sucker punches your goalie. Nobody. And Marchand, it's like, again, I love Brad Marchand because of how much I hate Brad Marchand. This type of shit, whether we want to admit it or not, is good for the game because it's entertaining and it gets people talking. And his whole shtick about when he wasn't letting Jari throw the puck to the fan, like that kind of stuff's great. But Come on, you moron. You're one of the best players in the world, and now your team doesn't get your services for six games in a playoff race. Not that Boston's, you know, in risk of losing it, but I guarantee you that's not the mindset in the dressing room. So just well, dumb all around. Bergeron hurt, Marchand out six games. They lost Krejci before the season. Tuka Rask, uh, his comeback stalled, and he's now retiring. <laughs> hey, look. The Red Wings get Verona back a little sooner than they want, than they thought they would. And all of a sudden, we're having a much different conversation here. And I'm only half kidding. Um, speaking of playoffs, the, uh, oh man, this is of course going to happen every year. The Vegas Golden Knights with Jack Eichel coming off LTIR, they're like, Hey, how are we going to fit him under the cap? Well, Mark Stone is rumored to potentially be going on LTIR for the remainder of the regular season. So. You are going to see something the, like this every year, every year until the NHL closes the loophole. First thing, couple reports came out from Vegas beat writers that apparently Mark Stone is legitimately hurt. He has missed several games this year because his back is wrecked. So let me be fair to Mark Stone on this one. That being said, the salary cap's not real and the NHL can't get it right. I'm sorry. I didn't like it when it happened last year. Same thing is going to happen this year with Vegas. They're going to be 10 mil over the cap or whatever Mark Stone's salary cap hit is going to be going into the playoffs. The salary cap's not real. I believe in a hard salary cap. I do not want to see a soft cap system like, you know, the NBA or something like that where you can go over, but you pay a tax, et cetera, et cetera, because it does make it very uh, unfair in the league. And this is coming from a fan of a team who would exploit this, who this would be advantageous for. I believe in parity. I think it's better for the NHL. But if you're going to allow this kind of stuff, just go to the soft cap and let's all stop pretending. Firmly, 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 firmly disagree with you on uh, putting the soft cap in, but that's an argument for a different day. No, I don't ever want the soft cap. But if you're going to allow this kind of stuff, 
Okay. Just yeah, stop yeah. the charade and just put in the soft cap. Either close this stupid loophole where the Vegas Golden Knights basically get a free Jack Eichel for a year or for a playoff run, or just go soft cap. Like, I hate that this stupid charade happens every year and only a few teams can take advantage of it rather than the entire league. Like, it's just dumb. Speaking of just dumb, let's jump into overtime. Overtime on this uh, midweek episode of the Wing Girl Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Um, all of you, seriously, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support. Um, you're the reason we're able to make this show happen, um, to put the time that we do, uh, to putting it out for you, and also to be able to switch, you know, to remote recording on a at the snap of a finger like that only happens because of our patreon supporters so thank you also very much patreon.com slash wheel podcast if you want to join the dub dub club so aptly or inaptly named um and uh help support the show so we'll take a few questions here uh jeremy doll says i remember being so excited that eisenman drafted raymond because of how excited you guys were for him can't recall but were you higher on him than stutzla and so far, Raymond looks better than the three picked in front of him. Don't you think? Do you think you can? Ke- he can keep that up? Oh, Insider is just awesome. That's all. I'll take this off air. So the one thing I actually very vividly remember is Stutzla's rise. Uh, it, none of us were saying, oh, this isn't worthwhile. You saw why Stutzla rose and it was very much the league was getting wise to him, you know, coming out of Germany and it's an underscouted league overall. So they thought, yeah, Tim Stutzler deserves to be picked this high. We figured Tim Stutzler was going to be off the board. But one thing I remember us saying, and, and you know, not to, I'm not whining here, but we took a lot of heat for this by saying Lucas Raymond at fourth overall might be a steal because you can make an argument that he could be. And Brad, you put your neck out for this one. I very specifically remember you saying it. He could be the second or third best player. And not guaranteeing it, but he has that capacity. And even the notion that he could be better than Stutzla, because it was considered one gap, two, small gap, three, and then everyone else. Even the notion that Raymond could have been better than Stutzla was kind of laughed at. And look where we are right now. It, it, we're only so far in, but look where we are now. So the one thing I remember the most uh, about what we or I was saying leading up to that draft, and I was pretty adamant about this was there was a group of four at the top and it was a very well-defined group of four and Lucas Raymond was in that group. I think I ultimately settled him on him at four because, you know, people who are way better at this scouting thing than I am were adamant that Byfield and Stutzler were that good, despite how high I was on Lucas Raymond. You know, that's one of those ones where if I was a braver man, I would have had Raymond at two because that's where he was in my head. But I do trust people who are smarter at this than me than I do myself. So I do take their opinions very seriously on that. And um, that could still very well end up being true. But I I think I, the phrase I used at one point is Lucas Raymond, who I had at four is closer to Alexi Lafreniere than he was to whoever was at number five. Like that, that top group, that top foursome in that draft had completely separated themselves from the field in my mind. And, you know, Byfields had real shit luck with injury, but it is kind of shaking up to be that. And so, you know, that uh, obviously, you know, there's other guys who are, are starting to make a case. But as of now, yeah, it looks like that was accurate. 
Uh, question from Aaron Hudson says, hey, boys, where does Verona fit in when he's back? Zudina looked great on the Larkin line. If he can start putting up points and it would be mad to move him and the Guelph line uh, is too hot to change. That's difficult. I think with Verona, you need to ease him in. Um, you're not going to see him on the first line day one. He missed a lot of time and shoulder is not an easy thing to come back from. You know that, unfortunately, very well, Brad. Um but hey, if if there's any kind of stasis or there's any kind of plateau on that top line, I think that's where he ends up. I agree. You don't break up that Guelph line. I think you just have to see how the trade deadline and how injuries shake out. Because as of right now, as of right now, I still think a fully healthy and rust-free Verano replaces Zidane on that top line. As painful as it is, as painful as it is, I just you can't ignore what Verano was doing before. That said. Maybe you stick Nemesnikov back on the top line and then you have a third line with Verona, Zadina, and whoever else, right? Like, that's not a bad idea either. Stick Joe Valeno in the middle. That's probably the best idea, honestly, because, yeah, when Verona comes back, as good as Verona is, and one thing that's happened through Verona's injury that I, I feel like I need to pour some water on, Verona has almost become this mythical figure that's going to come back and be a point per game player for the Red Wings. And he traditionally has not been that over his career. So before everybody starts making him in their head something that he's not, just remember that he is a possible first line player uh, on the Red Wings. I'll say a likely first line player, but like he's not Dylan Larkin. He's not going to be that level of player. So let's keep that in the back of our minds. But as good as he is and as good as he could be, yeah, the first few weeks back, he won't be his normal self. So he is probably just going to slide in on the third line and just play with whoever the hell is on the third line until he gets up to speed. That being said, if Robbie Fabry or Phil Dedina are like absolutely ice cold for a week or two leading to his comeback, then yeah, then screw it. You put him in there. But I think your idea, Ryan, is probably the best idea. Nemesnikov was fine on the third on the first line. Throw him back there. Verona and Zadina last year had unbelievable chemistry. You get Verona and Zadina going on a third line together, and all of a sudden the Red Wings have three legitimate scoring lines. They're a, that's a whole new ball game. That's a completely different team. Like uh, that alone probably adds three, four wins in a season for the Red Wings versus where they are right now. Because, you know, as much as we like Nemesnikov right now, Ernie and Rasmussen are doing nothing for that line. So it changes the entire dynamic of the team. Uh, time for one more here. This one's from Josh Terrell. Uh, and it's an interesting one. It says, one, it says, once Ken Holland is ultimately fired, would you ever see him coming back to Detroit in some kind of capacity? I... I think the well is poisoned, honestly. I, I just don't see it happening. And this is someone who still I'm very careful and intentional about not throwing away any of Ken Holland's previous achievements, which are plentiful. Um, I just think with how the last however many years went, five years, whatever you want to call it, you just don't do it. With all love and respect to Ken Holland, I hope not. And I'll leave it at that. And, and just one more note. Ken Holland is not the kind of guy for ceremonial positions. Otherwise, he never would have left Detroit. 
They would have kept him there as long as he wanted a paycheck and to be involved with the organization, even just to be in the meetings. If they listened to him for five minutes in every meeting and never took any of his advice, but he was still called the executive VP of whatever the hell, and he got to be there and wear the pin on his suit with the little with the winged wheel on it, fantastic. But that's just not the kind of guy Ken Holland is. Didn't like to be patronized. You could see it on his face. The moment he was ousted in favor of Eisenman, he was looking for something. Edmonton came up and that was a situation for him. So I wouldn't personally want it. I don't imagine the Red Wings would. And I don't imagine Ken Holland would. I think Steve Eisman would welcome him back. He's very gracious that way, but I, I just don't see it happening. Okay, we have to wrap up this so we can record our Patreon exclusive full overtime. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in and apologies for the difference in audio. I know recording remotely has its uh, has its difficulties, so thanks for bearing with us. Uh, we want to thank the sponsors of this episode, the FanDuel Sportsbook, as always, and of course, our name level supporters on Patreon, the heart and beat of the show, heart and beat. Good. I'm going to go. Uh, thank you all. Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Kyle Kragitz, Nick Perks, Brett Bailey, Terry Driver of the number 69, Crying Ryan Hannah's Banana Slam and Jamathong, Taylor Tagel, Matthew M. Rice, B. Diz, Carl Brutana Nanaluski, Chimmy, Citizen High Five, CJ Sully, Craig Kibble, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Bud, Give Blood, Give Blood, Fight Probert, Greech, Hana Lee, Hassam Al-Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Justin and the Angry Mob, Kaylin Wood, King Tone, Kyle Hashman, Licking Windows for Fun, Matt McKay, R.A., Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, Stay Fresh Cheese Bags, Your Friendly Neighborhood uh, Window Peeper, Zach Spring, Alex Blackmore, Andrew Bohan, Sam Bankson, Adam, I Wish I Could Finish Like Ernie, Antonio Gracias, Babe Landiscog, Ben Barron, Brad's Dad Moan, Connor Leighton, Dave W., Eric Sinkowski, Evans Bingo Card. I'm so blazed, dude. I don't know what to put here. James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, Jeremy Brocker, John Evans, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Logan Stull, Matt Keeler, Matt S., Max $1 million, Revy DeLuca, Terry Actual, The Secret Michael Rasmussen Tattoo on Brad's Left Butt Cheek, Trevor Pebavar, Zach Handyside, and Zach McCann, a driving range superstar. Thank you all so much. I now have to uh, ask Brad in private to show me his left butt cheek. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.